This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus and our contributors at Patreon.com. Last week, we went out of our way to draw your attention to a front-page story in the New York Times from just before the 2017 holidays that detailed the existence of a special department within the Pentagon dedicated to investigating encounters that military personnel were having with unidentified aerial phenomena. We connected the dots between that story and our own show, detailing how the people, places, and corporations listed within it all intermingled with multiple series from our own archives, most notably the Skinwalker Ranch episodes. While that New York Times piece was the most prominent story of 2017 and many years prior, it was most definitely not the only story of significance recently published. There have been others, filled with specific details provided by folks professionally trained in aviation. Tonight, we touch on those and further consider the big picture that is painted when you take all of these events and look at them together as a whole and try to determine what, if anything, it all might be pointing to. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. There has been and is an existing presence, an ET presence, and I spent millions and millions and millions. I probably spent more as an individual than anybody else in the United States has ever spent on this subject. Robert Bigelow on 60 Minutes, May 2017. Join us tonight for the final part of our series on recent prominent news sources publishing detailed and specific cases of unexplained encounters in a way not seen before. And we're back. Wow, I really, I wasn't ready. Just yeah. flat out wasn't ready. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we yeah, are oh, indeed. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead. Yes, we are indeed. First things first, we made a few mistakes last week that we're going to have corrections for tonight from some of our guests. I wouldn't call them flat out mistakes. Well, they no, were, but just... They need clarification, I'll say. That's a good way to put yeah. it. Yeah. One, for example, we it wasn't a mistake, but to be clear, UFO, or unidentified flying object, just means object. It doesn't mean it's of alien origin or manufacture. It just means it's an object, and it's unidentified, and no one knows what it is, at least not publicly. And it's flying, by the and way. It, it, right, As it's aerial. As opposed to the unidentified object uh, oh, on the well, floor of your bathroom. Well, it's kind of <laughs> under the sea. Yeah. That's a USO. Oh, yeah, USO, uh, unidentified submerged object. Yeah, again, just an object. And the reason we give it that designation, or at least the authorities have over the years, is that it's the most, I would say, non-biased way to look at it. Right. But, of course, ironically, over the years, everybody thinks aliens, UFOs, like, again, reeling this back in, just an object. But, of course, with popular culture and our public mindset, we immediately go to something that is extraterrestrial. So, Well, the acronym has been appropriated by science yeah, fiction. And of so, course. You know, it's yeah. not your fault or anyone's fault if you think of it as always alien, because that's what our entertainment culture has been teaching you for decades. Absolutely. But and, it's recently know. been clarified, I would say. People right. are, you just need to understand when you first see it. It's kind of, a, I think people are trying to eliminate confirmation bias. Just because it's unidentified yeah. and it's flying and it's an object right. does not mean that it came from Venus. Exactly. <laughs> well, it, yes, or another... <laughs> realm of Venus or Venusian. Yes. We've made this distinction before in other episodes. I'm sure of it when talking about uh, like the Fermi paradox or Dolphus ring. 
but we wanted to avoid any confusion here. But just, yeah, again, keep that in mind. There is technology, I firmly believe, that it's in our government's possession and the governments of the world that no one knows about publicly, of course. It's top secret. And so it might appear to be mystical, let's say, or extraterrestrial. Yes. So there you go. Clearing that one up. Well, we have quite a lineup tonight. Uh, Firstly, Rob Christofferson from Our Strange Skies, which is another podcast we highly suggest to check out, is back, as well as another member of the Astonishing Research Corps. We're just going to call Michael, who has... (laughs) Codename Michael. Codename Michael, who has uh, expertise in, among other things, U.S. military security clearances, and had a few notes about some of the things we implied in last week's episode with regard to how that structure works, that hierarchy. Yes, again, not necessarily an error. Yeah, not necessarily an error. Force wants me to stop saying I'm, we made mistakes. I, I'm, I'm sending like Jeremy Clarkson here. Yeah. <laughs> the creator, like, stop correcting me. Yeah. No, the idea is that they could use some clarification because, well, also what Michael talks about, that some of these ideas are publicly held, but misconceptions. Yes. Nonetheless. Hey, mis- because they publicly come held Hollywood. ideas. Yeah, exactly. As opposed exactly. to how the government works. Yeah, that's kind of what he says, is that that's where we get our information because unless you really dive deep into some of these documents and some of of you folks out there do, most of the people aren't going to really know how to define all this stuff. So we we let movies do it for us. Yes. Michael puts some of those uh, misconceptions to rest or just ex- explains how security, at least on the government level and the military level, is laid out. Yes. And by the way, we're concealing Michael's true identity. Our producers have verified his background and credentials. Our, our producer? You mean Tess, right? Yes, I do. Oh. <laughs> Well, you know what? The, no, well, he communicated with Tess, and she, uh, yeah. He, you know what the flaw in that him. setup is? We've actually never met Tess in person. Yeah, we've never met Tess in person. <laughs> well, I mean, we've heard her voice. It's a little someone's crazy. voice. I, she's the only one in our inner circle that we haven't met in person. I guess uh, uh, Doc Cogs. Well, you know, yeah, yeah, but I, I'm talking about like the original. Like we've even met other members well, of the research. Someone in showed up claiming to be Marie. Yes, and it, it looked it was consistent <laughs> with the pictures online. I'll say that. Yeah. And there are some people that think you're not real. They think I'm just doing a voice trick. Yes, that is one of the prevailing theories, that Scott has multiple personalities, and he's (laughs) able to quickly switch between uh, my voice and uh, and his own. Yeah, this whole show is just a construct in my head. Hey, Elon Musk, that is a theory that uh, this is just some big video game that uh, aliens 4,000 years from now are playing. All right, this is... This give me a headache. <laughs> Blowing your mind? Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna... <laughs> well, you're not comforted by the uh, cogito ergo sum. But you... I mean, am, am I all alone? You well, aren't you, real. You know, Tess you... isn't real. Yeah, that's how you know you're real. It works for me. I know I'm real. I don't know if you're real, actually. Well, neither one of us. Uh, you know, See, what? No, I know. I'm gonna, <laughs> I gotta, I'm gonna <laughs> no. go lay down on my cot. That's I'm probably just, a good idea. A go ahead. Go take a minute. Uh, take a breather. I'll cover for you. How's that? First things first. Let's get Rob Christofferson from Our Strange Skies patched back in. Hey, Rob, are you there? I'm here, sir. All right. Welcome back to the show. We had so much fun with you last week. We wanted to have you back on. Sorry about leaving you on hold that whole time. <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah. The phone bill is going to be tremendous, man. Jeez. <laughs> we have a lot to cover. Oh, there's one thing that we did not mention in the introduction tonight that I did want to say. I wanted to give a shout out to UT Austin because- Oh, yeah. That's had, recent. Yeah. yeah. We had a listener share someone else's tweet with us who was taking this class at UT Austin called Paranormal America. That's right. And this student, Maria Della, had just been given a required reading, listening, and viewing list by the professor, Professor Eddie Whitewolf, who is clearly a brilliant man. And Maria Della took a picture of that list, and she tweeted it out, tagging her favorite podcast, which she had drawn a cute little heart by. 
lore. Yeah, she's a lore <laughs> fan. So on the syllabus there, yeah. she'd put a little heart by lore and, and tweeted out, hey, guess what's on the syllabus for this semester? Yeah. And then a listener of ours, who apparently is either following her or also or a... Aaron, yeah. yeah. We're following Laura. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Saw that and tweeted that at us. It's yes. like, wow, we're, we made the list. Yeah, we made yeah. the list. We're part of the curriculum at uh, UT <laughs> yeah. Austin. So uh, yeah. a bunch of our listeners picked up on it, including... Uh, Jomo and uh, Tiffany Robertson and uh, Tresca, all these guys who were retweeting it to us, we did happen to see it. It does hurt our feelings that we didn't have a little heart next to us, but <laughs> no. hopefully... Hey, we're, we're above <laughs> lore in the listing. <laughs> we are. And the, uh, yeah, the syllabus listing. Probably alphabetical. I will say I'm pleased to be on the list because I can also see The Thing. Oh, classic. Uh, Close Encounters. I mean, this of is course. very... Uh, yeah. You know, I just have to say this is clearly one of the smartest professors in the country. <laughs> well, um, the, <laughs> the surprise is that there's a class being taught in it. Yes. But remember, Brian... Brian Bethel, who was teaching a class in journalism, yes, I believe, was going after paranormal stories. Yeah. And, and you have to have open-minded teaching, I believe. Exactly. To cover everything. Well, so. especially with American studies. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's, I would love to go back and take that. If only I had appreciated college when I was in it. That's the thing, though. <laughs> when you're a kid, you don't. No, you <laughs> yeah. don't. I know. And I keep trying to impress upon my eight-year-old, you, you should be enjoying this time right now. No, that's impossible. Yeah, yeah. it is impossible. But he is always <laughs> having fun, to be clear. First things first, I did want to talk a little bit about some clarifications. Wait, right. Forrest doesn't like it when I say errors or mistakes. No, no, I'm fully <laughs> uh, in uh, favor of pointing stuff out when we get it wrong, of course, yeah. on social media, Twitter. Uh, but here it's like, it's more of a... Something that needs to be clarified that wasn't clear to begin with. Well, and there's a couple of things. There's yeah. two things. The first thing I want to talk about was the budget. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that, okay, that's probably that's the most uh, commented thing was how much money exactly was spent over a certain period of time. Yeah, because what the New York Times article said, and I'll quote it here, was in the $600 billion annual Defense Department budgets, the $22 million spent on the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program was almost impossible to find, end quote. And when Forrest and I were putting our outline together for last week's show, and this is specifically relating to that front page article on the New York Times that we centered a lot of the show around, which we're going to talk further about tonight, he actually was saying, I don't think this is annual. And I pushed him towards saying, no, it's annual. And then we wrote it uh, that it was annual. It's not $22 million annually. Because it started out talking about an annual budget, I thought that's what it meant. But I was wrong. It actually was $22 million spent over the course of the program's official existence, which in the article it said was from 2007 to 2012, or right, five years. Right. Here's the thing. Yeah. There's another qualifying sentence further down, which I completely missed, that says, Quote, contracts obtained by the Times show a congressional appropriation of just under $22 million beginning in late 2008 through 2011. Okay. The money was used for management of the program, research, and assessments of the threat posed by the objects. Right. You know, again, as we spoke about earlier from the New York Times point of view and them exposing, well, it's not a, a, an expose, it's a revelation of sorts that... American taxpayer money is being spent on something that many would consider frivolous yes, or worthless. Why are you doing that? Well, there's a reason, and it's a significant amount of money. The other viewpoint, I would say, is it tells you, you don't know exactly what they're doing, but like, how serious is this? Because $22 million over a number of years in a Pentagon budget is a drop in the bucket. Yeah. And so is that just information gathering? Is that just, you know, administrative costs, person power to organize this information and do some investigation and cataloging? I would imagine if they're building something, that's $22 million like every month, you know? 
because those materiel costs are going to be skyrocketing. Yeah. It'd be huge. It's like, well, how, much they, how much do they spend at Area 51? Yeah. We'll never know. I can't remember who was it that said, oh, yeah, it was Commander Fravor who said it's essentially that budget is a rounding error. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when it, when it comes to pricey toys like that, yeah, it's, it's nothing. It's, it's invisible. And he said an article that we're going to talk about tonight that was just came out two days ago in the Boston Globe. Yeah. This story is still going, folks. This one is very recent. And Rob, I want to thank you for bringing that to our attention, by the way. Mm-hmm. In that article, he said, we need to get some real money behind this. He's like, right. this is happening. The threat is real. And real money and real focus needs to be put on these objects. Yeah, yeah. So I was looking at Bigelow, right? His estimated net worth, according to these websites, which I know are probably very loose all over the place, but it's about $1 billion. And as I said, in terms of billionaires, he's on the bottom rung there. You know, I don't (laughs) know. Wow. Let's see where Warren Buffett's at right now. Well, Uh, no, that's a Jeff Bezos. It's a ridiculous uh, number. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. 2018 Warren Buffett net worth. It would be one hundred billion right now if not for something I'm not going to read. Sure, would all right. Going, so uh, yeah, well, then one hundred billion. Yeah. But but look at Bezos. Yeah. Bezos is just hitting one hundred billion. Okay. I just read that the other day. Well, new money. Yeah. Bill Gates <laughs> is at ninety two. And okay. I, I remember I used to, when I was younger, uh, I used to watch Gates who, and Buffett. Who's, who's it was always Gates and Buffett trading, yeah, sure. you know, Bezos was, you know, still in a garage. Right. And it's crazy when you think about that kind of, I mean, not to, a little tangent, we haven't had tangent in a while. <laughs> well, according to us. <laughs> uh, just within uh, maybe five days before, I think, either before or after my son was born on May 13th in yeah. uh, 2009, you know what else was born? Minecraft. Oh, yes. That guy oh. was like in his mom's basement in Sweden, and yeah. now he lives in Beyonce's old house. So um, <laughs> the, just, know, it's just crazy. One of her many houses. See what yeah. you can do in nine years? And which is what I immediately told my son. I said, look, what you could have been doing. If you'd have come out and started programming, we could be living in well, Beyonce's yeah, house. There so, you go. He just plays it and wants to tell you all about it. Yes. Yeah. But here's the thing. <laughs> you, I wonder, in kind of the connection to what we're talking about here, if you wanted to be contact an SE Haddon, what kind of money does that take to fund that yourself? What kind of industry do you have to have built up to be able to do it? Now, Hotels for transient workers in Las Vegas. Well, something, yeah, cha- <laughs> a chain of uh, nicely appointed uh, extended stay hotels yes. will get you started. By the way, we can't leave out that we got the emails this morning from Blake. Our, oh, that's, our, yes. our skeptical friend over at Monster, Monster Talk, Talk which yeah. is a, a good show. And we had him on we, a great deal when we were dealing with the Kelly Hopkinsville story. Right. But Blake emailed this morning, goes, I don't think you guys are reading that right. It's like Princess Bride. I don't think that word <laughs> means what you think it means. <laughs> and he was right. We went back and forth about it. And the more I looked at it and then found that second sentence, it was like, no, it's right. It was $22 million over four years. Yeah. So, well, again, to reiterate, when you're talking about a Harry Reid Quote, and he didn't come up with this. It's a well-known term, I believe, in Pentagon circles, but it's quote-unquote black money. Yeah. Who knows? You're just getting a figure that they wanted to put out there. The black part of the black money, that's black. You don't see it. It's in the dark. It's black. That's what the term means. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. So to kind of wrap that up, that's the clarification on the money spent. And again, the reason to point that out is to let you know that some serious money was spent on at least administrative costs. and. An unknown amount was spent on other things, but the idea is that them spending money on it means someone's taking it seriously. Yeah. That's, to me, is the gist of this whole uh, article business. Yeah, but by all accounts of everyone currently involved, not enough people are taking it seriously, and it's not getting enough money. Well, exactly. So that's where private business comes in, and that we mentioned this on part one. That's where Bigelow comes in, and his idea is that 
you're never going to get the government to at least do anything that's for the general good of the public. Right. It's going to have to be industry. It's going to be your Elon Musk's, Jeff Bezos, Robert Bigelow himself, who are going to lead this, who do have some funds and uh, are going to put them towards actually developing any technologies, who knows where they come from, but they're going to be used for public benefit. Yes. Not for hidden things that we'll never see. Yeah. And Robert Bigelow has a tube that spits out technology <laughs> on his ranch in Utah. Well, he can just go and get, pick it, it up. It just technology dropped, yeah. and weird creatures. Or it's, um, or it's and says, he meets yeah. with the aliens every other Tuesday <laughs> yes. and has lunch with them. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but my question is, why did they, because they said clearly in the New York Times article, that budget, that $22 million was going pretty much to Bigelow Aerospace. My question is, why? He can afford to operate without it. Oh, you don't. What are you talking I, about? Well, no, you don't. You never use your own money. Look at Steven Spielberg. But he, he, doesn't, is, he doesn't pay for uh, the movies himself. No. You always get the studios to do that. But Bigelow is using his own money. That's yeah, he, but he's at the, a lot at the same it. time, yeah. though, there may be Bigelow money into this because this is just saying contracts obtained, say, $22 million between 2008 and 2011. Well, if this program is in existence beyond 2012 all the way up to 2017, there's a good chance that Bigelow may have been funding this because it, Luis Elizondo made it seem like, well, this is on my own time that I'm doing this. So money's still got to be coming from somewhere, obviously. Sure, sure. And Bigelow seems like the guy. We have the connections. He's the only real guy connected to this that has the money, and he also has the scientists. And a point that I failed to make last week, we know of another person that was actually tied to this, and that was Colm Kelleher is actually tied to A-A-Tip, because if you go on to To The Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences website, uh -huh. there is a little blurb in there saying that he was basically part of that program. And at the end of, uh, if we're going way back even to uh, Skinwalker Ranch. At the end of that, Colm Kelleher basically left NIDS and they pretty much shut it down. And he was going to do like, a, I, th I believe it was like a cancer fellowship. And a couple years later, he ends up back at Bigelow and specifically Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies. And the reason that we know this, and this is genius, my friend Sam Fredrickson of the Not Alone podcast, he oh, was yeah. doing some research. By the way, that's a great show. This is absolutely a great show. Yeah. <laughs> he found a uh, LinkedIn profile for Colm Keller, and it what? said right on it, Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. There well, you go. Send him a uh, friend request. Yeah. By the way, for people that don't remember the Skinwalker series, NIDS is the National Institute for Discovery Science that was formed by Bigelow. To study the events at Skinwalker Ranch, yeah. which, of course, nothing really happened in there. That's all made up, right? <laughs> it's all made up. Yeah, but see, <laughs> no, that's more money spent on equipment and salaries and all that. Well, to and quote him, millions and millions and millions, yeah, as you just yeah. said at the top of this show. That's right. You know, out of his own pocket or, you know, as part of a division of his industries, that does not return any money, really. You know yeah. what I'm saying? If you're building inflatable pods for the ISS... Yeah, you're going to get government money to develop that and sell those. So that returns a profit, too. And also, the huge amount of research that goes into developing the inflatable module for the ISS and whatever else you want to use it for, all he had to do was go out to the ranch and wait for it to fall out of the tube. <laughs> well, so, I guess <laughs> well, sort of. Yeah, well, well, but we may have an actual interesting lead on that, and I kind of mentioned this to you guys last week off air. Again, going back to Sam, he ended up finding this old website for NIDS. It was a really 90s looking website for NIDS. And it had a bunch of research that they did on it, most of it pertaining to cattle mutilations 
and uh, Skinwalker Ranch. But they also, back in the year 2000, there was a big UFO sighting in southern Illinois. It was, I believe it was uh, in January of 2000. And NIDS got word of it. They kept getting reports, and they actually sent people out to investigate it. Okay. And in their paper on this investigation, they determined that because people claim to see black triangles in the air. And what NIDS came to, their conclusion, is that it was an inflatable craft made by the government. I don't know how you get to that from seeing that, but... I tend to wonder, did that kind of have an influence on let's make some inflatable pods and send them up into space? Yeah. Yeah. No, remember we, yeah, we were thinking about that because that was the last thing determined was that somehow, you know, they're lighter than air ships, but propelled and quickly, I think. So they could be. It's not quickly though. The black triangles are always slow, aren't they? Well, generally, uh, yeah. Generally, but uh, I've, I've read reports of, from people where they zip off, you know, it's like, bing, you know, they're kind of hovering, they're silent, or there, maybe there's a low hum. There's usually on the points, there's a a light. blimp propeller. Yeah. But so, (laughs) so yeah, if you've ever been near, uh, we're actually not too far away from where the Goodyear blimp is docked in Torrance. Yeah. I used to work down there and that's a very specific strange hum. When you hear that, you Yes. Definitely look up in the sky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen all kinds of reports, you know, about the black triangles, but I do specifically remember, yeah, when that when that came out, that was the conclusion was that these were some kind of uh, strangely skinned, lighter than aircraft under intelligent propulsion. And that was what people were seeing. Possibly of you know. terrestrial and even domestic origin. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. But it doesn't, like everything else, it never explains all the sightings. No, maybe I want to talk to Kurt maybe. Russell. Yeah. I'm going to try and I'm going <laughs> to... Go through my wife, we, see if I can get there. We need to know uh, about yeah. the Phoenix Lights immediately. For people that don't pilot. know, he was a pilot yeah, that he, first reported it, right? Yeah, he was bringing his son to meet up with his girlfriend in the plane. <laughs> well, there you <laughs> go. But this is the life I want. I mean, you're already Snake Plissken. You're like flying your kid to yeah. a date. That's awesome. Yeah, right? This is Yaffet Leeds from Leeds Point, New Jersey. And when I'm not hunting the Jersey Devil, I'll listen to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show with Scott and Forrest. Also, too, about the Black Triangles, it's also the only type of UFO that actually has a designation, Uh an official designation within military history circles and even in the UFO circles. They call them TR-3Bs. Oh. Do you know what that stands for? I have no idea. (laughs) I've uh... never actually (laughs) researched it, but it's just like, it's that one term that they throw out, like TR-3B. Well, it sounds like It sounds like a new triumph. Yeah, but it could be. You know, the TR-4A. It could be, but, it's, but it's, it's one of the latest <laughs> models. If you think about the shapes of the craft, which, and that's another interesting aspect of all this, is that, of course, you know, as we've talked about previously, they're all manner of shapes and lights and blinkingness and the things that they do or don't. I had to look it up, you know, as some of our listeners know. I'm a car guy. The uh, Triumph okay. that has really? the, the sweeping fenders and the doors, like, that are very low that you can almost climb over, low convertible, that's TR-3A. Right. Um, well, they don't zip off at uh, They degrees. are not triangular. Yeah. Okay. Uh, they do have a happy smiley face in the front, uh, but they don't, they can't fly. Okay. Well, we, we cleared that up. Well, dang it. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's just one letter different from that. That's interesting. Well, no, that, right? that they're so prevalent, that shape, and, yeah. and it's such an iconic thing that now there is a designation. It tells you a little bit about it. Yeah. They're at least taking that aspect of it seriously. Yeah. Before we keep going, I, there is one other thing that is absolutely a correction that I have to make. And this oh, is yes, a, that's right. fully on me. I conflated 
two separate sightings that were associated with the New York Times stories, both the front page one and the one that appeared only on page A22. That was also easy to mistake, though, because it's the on the Times article, it's the first thing that pops up, especially on the web. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's easy to get that idea of, like, that's the incident they're talking about, but it's not. It's kind of a demonstrative video clip of yeah. something similar. Yeah, exactly. They both involve the FA-18 Super Hornet. They both have videos associated with them that look like an FA-18 Super Hornet HUD or heads-up display. So they were very similar in nature, and I mistakenly thought that the second case was an elaboration on the case that was mentioned in the primary article, and I was wrong about that. And Rob, I wanted to thank you for bringing that to my attention. You could have done it while we were recording, but uh, <laughs> well, nobody I was we didn't distracted. Really I apologize. Yeah, no, me, <laughs> me too. I kind of tune out whenever Scott's talking. Yes, anyway, it, so, as do yeah. the listeners. Yeah, uh, sure. But anyway, the second story is entirely <laughs> different. And it's actually a lot more disconcerting. So we're going to talk about that tonight. However, the story, the encounter in the primary article has one of my favorite quotes from all of this, you know, the one that really makes you think, whoa. And that quote is, there's a whole fleet of them. Yeah. And when you hear that, it's just like, what does that mean? In fact, take a listen to this audio from that encounter. I want to stress that this is actually the original audio. This is not uh, from Ryan, our sound designer. Uh, he didn't do anything to this other than put like a little start and stop sound on it. Other than that, it's completely unaffected, aside from the fact that we did pull up some of the dead air a little bit to uh, to get it to play a little quicker. But other than that, it's exactly as it was recorded by the pilots. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. Oh my gosh. We're going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Oh, that thing, dude. That's not an LNS, though, is it? It's not. That is an LNS, dude. Well, if there's like another thing, it's rotating. What's interesting to me is that there you hear these guys say something that in the transcript, if you see the visual of this, and you can find the link in our show notes, on the transcript it's marked as inaudible because whoever transcribed it, I guess for the New York Times, I think, couldn't figure out what it was and didn't yeah. didn't bother to track it down. Well, I, I think they will err on the side of not being specific with it if they don't really know. They can't really tell. Yeah. So so inaudible. I want to play that clip right here. That's not an LNS though, is it? It's not an LNS, dude. I was determined to figure out what they were saying there in that little clip. And at first I thought it was ONS, you know, or something like ONS. Is that the ONS? But then when I listened to it again, it sounded more, and I listened to it like 50 times just this morning. Yeah. <laughs> like head on the speaker, headphones, and it sounded more like the letter L and S. L and S or L N S. And Rob, yeah. I don't know if you already did this or got to the bottom of this, but like once I started looking for L and S as it related to aviation, it turns out somebody had already come up with this exact same question and posted it in the Navy subreddit. I wanted to read that discussion because I thought this was pretty interesting. Redditor Alt Wolf posted about this in that subreddit that I just mentioned, and there were a couple of guys who responded to him. And so what he had put in was like, I can't figure out what this means or what they're saying. And the response came from two guys who clearly have naval aviation experience or knowledge of how these things work. One is a uh, user polka.cupcake. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's uh, almost noted, as, yeah, almost as good as ice or maverick. Yes, yeah. see, noted talented pilot and aviator polka dot cupcake. Uh, by the way, if you hear this polka dot, I'm presuming that since it's on Reddit, we can run it in yeah, the well, show. It's um, all there. It's, public. Uh, yeah. it's on the internet. We yeah. also presume you have the need for speed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's dangerous. That's right. I am dangerous. Um, yeah. So he said, 
Polkadot Cupcake said, I haven't listened to the recording, so I can't vouch for context, but L and S equals launch and steering. It's basically a term used to mean they had a lock on the contact with their radar. So I think it's what he's saying is it's a technical term for a lock, but it basically means if I release this weapon, it will launch and it will follow the target. Yeah. So this other gentleman chimes in, Light Dog WK, and he writes, that's not what they're actually saying in that clip is that's not R, L, and S though, is it? And this is probably the uh, the WSO, I believe, saying this, the weapons system officer talking to the pilot. They're talking back and forth in the plane. I don't believe it's two different pilots. Right. Uh, I think it's two guys in one plane. And so that's not our LNS, though, is it? That is the LNS, dude. So Light Dog says what they're trying to do is QA whether or not the track file they have or the lock they have is what they're looking at on their infrared, on their FLIR, which is forward-looking infrared. So that is interesting to me because essentially what they can't figure out is whether or not they have two different targets identified with their gear. And that's what that debate is about. It doesn't shed a whole lot of light on what the craft is. But to me, when you're hearing a discussion about something like this, you want to know what everything they're saying means. Sure. The other thing they mention is the SA. That's the synthetic aperture radar, which scans targets beyond visual range which according to an article in Popular Mechanics we found, implies that there were even more objects, or AATs or AAVs. Rob, you were telling me a minute ago what what these two acronyms mean, AAT. Yeah, AAT, it means anomalous aerial threat. Okay. And AAV means anomalous aerial vehicle. Okay. Anomalous aerial threat, anomalous aerial vehicle. And you had also heard, in some cases, the first A stood for advanced. Yes, yeah, sometimes Which is uh, interesting. people will refer to it that way. This explains the line that there's a fleet of them, right? It's called the gimbal video is specifically what they name it. Okay, because they're referring to the craft as like a gimbal, right? Cause, yeah. Cause it's rotating. Um, it looks like a gimbal. It's rotating. Right, right. And just a comment on the forward-looking infrared. Yes. Um, what they were using, it was called advanced targeting forward-looking infrared. Right. And basically it recorded at a high resolution and it could also locate targets at a distance of 40 nautical miles. All right, so that's interesting. So what's happening is they're able to see these craft using the technology on board the airplanes that is telling them that there's more outside their field of vision. And that's how they're saying, look, there's a whole fleet of them. It's not because they're necessarily laying eyeballs on this fleet of craft. They're seeing this one, or they might be seeing this one on the technology that shows things that are close to them. But then there's even more technology on the aircraft that's showing them that there's several more way out of range and keeping their distance, apparently. Yeah, multiple bogeys. Multiple bogeys. So uh, what's happening, though, is they're making the assessment that it's not just one single anomaly. It's a coordinated squadron of some kind, of something. Which is worse. Well, (laughs) Well, look, none of our military that we know of has been directly attacked. Rob might confirm this, but, you know, I've, especially in Leslie Keene's book, there's descriptions of military aircraft firing on these objects. And as some pilots have described, it seems like it absorbed the bullets. Like they were in, they were in firing range. They should have hit it. Nothing happened. That's a fifth element situation. Oh yeah. (laughs) It's Um, just getting mad. (laughs) Well, and, and so, you know, again, as far as we know, nothing has been downed by this anomalous aerial threat. Not like that would make the front page, by the way. 
No, it, it wouldn't, but it's like things in the military, people talk. I've certainly had tons of friends in the military. Well, they were in, why? They don't tell me secret things, but, you know, weird stuff that happens. People chatter, so it's, Your apartment's being ransacked right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it already looks like that. They're going to go in, and all they could do is straighten it up. Right. So that's on purpose. Yeah. So the gimbal video is pretty descriptive. Do you see a, a white object, and it's clearly rotating? And it's in view, it's centered, and it's very observable in that white hot and black hot uh, FLIR viewing mode. So that one's kind of exciting. Plus, you have the commentary of these guys, and they're younger guys, you can tell. But it's interesting visually. Let's talk about this other encounter that was the secondary article in the New York Times on page A22. The details behind this story are really engrossing. The video associated with it is not as interesting as the gimbal video. The second video then we're talking about here is connected to Commander David Fravers and his weapons officer, uh, Lieutenant Commander Jim Slate. Rob, what's the status of that piece of video? Well, initially, this video was posted online. Somebody had gotten a hold of it and thrown it up on YouTube. It wasn't long after the sighting. It was, I, I think it was like less than a year after Fravor actually had his sighting and it was taken off of YouTube. It mentions it in the fightersweep.com article towards the end, but uh, this fightersweep.com article gained traction in October of last year because it was posted by George Knapp and like uh, the, the Twitter sphere and the UFO world kind of blew up a little bit because there was this sighting of a tic-tac-shaped object and like it, that shape is distinct it's definitely it's very related to that sighting so about a week after George Knapp posted the article from fightersweep.com and about a week later it was posted on a website that is associated I think it's Jeremy Corbell's website and it's on there and then it shows up again later in the Times article in December in fightersweep.com that's where you have to decide whether you want to fight somebody or clean up your house <laughs> yeah. No, it's not or Pretty sweep. Much. It's yeah. fighter. Like an fighter. Yeah. 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 Just you know, yeah. You're fighting we'll have, the, the urge to clean. Yes. We'll have a link <laughs> to that article because it's really fascinating. That one is something uh, Rob brought to our attention. It's told by pilots, about pilots. So it's, exactly. it's got a military yeah. perspective to it, which I find more illuminating, honestly, when well, you look you, at the bigger you, picture. You have better comments, not just idiot yeah. comments, yeah. Yeah. comments <laughs> from people who are, you know, don't know anything about it. So yeah. that's very interesting. That's being discussed in those circles. But this story is just amazing. And it comes to us by way of Commander David Fravor, who is a retired FA-18 pilot. Firstly, I want to go back for people that maybe haven't heard part one in a while or, or don't remember where we're getting all this from. We are talking about the New York Times that came out on December 17th, and this article was actually released digitally on the 16th of 2017, and we'll have a link to it. We're also going to be looking at a Boston Globe interview with Commander Fravor from just two days ago, as we record this, on January 16th, which was written by Martin Finucane. It's F-I-N-U-C-A-N-E. Could be Finucane. Uh, okay. Anyway, Martin wrote it. We have the one piece from the New York Times, which the headline of that one was, Two Navy Airmen and an Object that, quote, accelerated like nothing I've ever seen, end quote. And then we have the second article in The Globe. That one is titled, This Former Navy Pilot Who Once Chased a UFO Says We Should Take Them Seriously. And again, the New York Times article is by the same three journalists that wrote the front page piece, Helene Cooper, Leslie Keene, and Ralph Blumenthal. 
So the details associated with the other sighting, it starts out like this. About 100 miles off the coast of San Diego in November of 2004, two F-A-18F Super Hornets, which had been stationed on the USS Nimitz, were out on a routine training mission. Commander Fravers was brand new, and in, in the article on, I think it was on Fighter Sweep, he said it still had that new car smell. Yeah. And, <laughs> and um, he had a weapon system officer, WSO, on board with him, which is kind of like Goose was in Top Gun, except he was an, an RIO, I think Radio Intercept Officer, they used to call him, a Rio. Yeah, we're probably screwing up all these terms, but, you know, when you, again, if you have friends that are in the military, they throw these at you, you kind of remember some of the names for them, and... And they change over time, depending on the technology. Yes, I was right. I was wrong. Not radio. Did I say radio intercept? Yeah. O- it's radar intercept officer. There you go. So please save the emails. I'm correcting it right now. Radar <laughs> intercept officer. I am not claiming to be an aviator. These guys are out on a routine training mission. And the way this event unfolds is it starts with them being asked by a Navy cruiser, the USS Princeton, which is a 568-foot Ticonderoga-class guided missile cruiser. These guys uh, reach out to the pilot, Commander Fravor, and the other pilot, and ask them if they're carrying any live weapons, which they were not. Commander Fravor had two uh, dummy weapons on his plane, which could not even be fired and were not live. The Princeton then tells them, we've got a real-world vector for you. And this is something that apparently the Princeton had been tracking for two full weeks. These are multiple objects that would appear suddenly at 80,000 feet, then accelerate down, straight down towards the Pacific Ocean, stopping at 20,000 feet and hovering. And on top of that, they've been doing it so much that they had what they referred to on the Princeton as a favorite spot. They kind of knew where this was going to happen because it kept happening over and over. After they would go to the 20,000 feet, they would either drop below radar range or they would shoot straight back up, theoretically into space. I guess, but they didn't track them that far. They only tracked them to a certain point. Commander Fravor and the other pilot headed for these objects, guided by the Princeton, because they were not getting radar signature for them. But the Princeton had multiple sophisticated radar systems on board, including the SPY, SPY SPY-1, which in an article by Paco Chiarici, which is on the uh, fightersweep.com, which Rob brought to our attention, This article calls the SPY-1 system the most sophisticated and powerful tactical radar on the planet at the time. This is in 2004. That's probably junk now on the bottom of the ocean. (laughs) 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 But when the planes got to where the Princeton told them that the objects should be, they didn't see anything until Commander Fravor looked down towards the ocean and he could see the water churning over something that was just barely underneath the waves, which were whitecapping around the object. Although it was a totally calm day, clear skies, beautiful weather, and the ocean was calm everywhere else. Commander Fravor said in the Boston Globe article that the object appeared to be about the size of a Boeing 737. So there was, was a thought that they had was that an airliner had just gone down. Yeah, right. But he, ne- he doesn't ever really talk about the shape of it, but that it was big. Yeah, and, those kind of dimensions. Right. But just above this object, about 50 feet above it, was a giant tic-tac. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so this, it was a second object, approximately 40 feet long and oval, and was described as follows in the article by Cooper, Keen, and Blumenthal in the New York Times. Quote, the craft was jumping around erratically staying over the wave disturbance, but not moving in any specific direction, Commander Fravor said. The disturbance looked like frothy waves and foam as if the water were boiling, end quote. 
And then Fravor also told The Globe just two days ago, this one that just came out, that it looked like a giant tic-tac and was bouncing around like a ping-pong ball. Yeah. So here's where it gets really interesting. Commander Fravor decides that he wants to go down lower to take a look at it. So he begins a spiral descent, like you do when you're trying to land on a runway in a tiny canyon or something. So he's coming down and the spiraling down towards the object. And apparently the object at that point notices what he's doing and begins spiraling upward. So now they're doing this dance. Fravor's coming down in circles. The object is coming up in circles. And Fravor, doing what you might expect a fighter pilot to do, decides to hell with this spiraling. (laughs) I'm going straight at this thing. Turns and heads straight for it. And as he does that and he gets close to it, he wants to get a really good, he's planning a flyby, essentially. He wants to get right past it and see what it is. When he gets near it, it just takes off faster than anything he's ever seen in his life, just vanishes. And so listen to this quote from Chirichi's piece on fightersweep.com. His call sign was Fast Eagle, by the way. Dave put Fast Eagle 2 into high cover, passing through about 15K, and she and her WSO, that's the weapons systems officer, witnessed the events from a perfect vantage point. Dave continued his dive lower towards the object, now also attempting to slave the radar through his HMCS to achieve a short-range lock. No luck. His intention was to pass the object close aboard at about 350 knots, but as he got closer, he noticed that the AAV, anomalous aerial vehicle, had oriented one of its skinny ends towards him, as if, in his words, quote, it had just noticed us, end quote, and it was now pointing at them. He then looked back towards the object under the water, and it was gone. So I'm just going to ask you real quick. We'll come back to this later, but does this sound like human technology? (laughs) Flying Tic Tac Uh. has a meeting with a sunken (laughs) 737. And then they both vanish. Well, here's the thing. The <laughs> One, it sounds a little like the description, like a tic-tac, or it reminds me of Airplane. Remember Johnny's like, it looks like a big Tylenol. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get that out of my head because yeah. he, he, that guy was great. But anyway, it's not a threatening shape. It's not like a Borg cube or something that we envision in, in the movies as scary with a lot of spines on it. And uh, it looks dastardly. It's a pretty innocuous shape. Again, yeah, it looks like a... <laughs> It looks like a big capsule. Yeah. But what it's doing must have freaked out Commander Fravor, and it did, because it's not behaving like it's using or relying on aerodynamic lift, as his advanced jet is. Yeah. At the time, it's one of the most advanced fighter aircraft that's out there. Yeah. The F-A-18F. But, you know, when they make a turn, it's it takes miles. You know what I'm saying? It's, they're going so fast, they're doing it in a sweep, and they still rely on air. This thing is not doing that. It's bouncing around like a ping pong ball. What, yeah. what does that? And it's levitating. Yeah. So right there, that's the distinction to me. It's not like, as I was going to say, maybe in our conclusions here, is that... Yes, we've heard of advanced aircraft that flies at multi-mock speeds, Mach 7, 8, 10. We've heard of the Aurora Project, certainly here in California, the double sonic booms of some mysterious craft they're testing out at Edwards. There's also recently been some articles related to the SR-72, which, you know, up until now is apocryphal. But if the SR-71 flew to 85,000 feet, which, by the way, every year they publish a new number about what it was really <laughs> right. capable of. Yeah. But it flew to 85,000 feet. So, yeah, we could achieve those altitudes. We can achieve those speeds because we're capable of all that, but not in this fashion, without wings, without engines, without any method of propulsion. It yeah. just, we can't do that. And then the other question, the big question I have too, what was in the water? 
What's going on with that? No yeah. one's talking about that. Right, because we also don't have craft that, you know, go above and below in the same mission. Yeah. Unless it's uh, James Bond's Lotus that uh, drives on the road. And that, was, <laughs> we, that was recently rescued. Yeah. Just yeah, last year yeah, from a that. container. Right. But yeah. that's not the usual for military craft, as no. far as we know. So, again, he's observing something that doesn't look like any submersible craft that he's aware of, and he's in the Navy. Yeah. So, again, this guy is a trained observer, knows everything that's out there, and is aware of every threat that he should be aware of that's known to man at the time. That's what's, I think, freaking him out. And also what's cool is that he's very intrigued with this. Like his comment was, I want to engage this thing. Yeah. I want to head towards it. I want to see this thing and I want to fly that thing. Yeah, but here's the other thing about that. Before they even got back to the Nimitz, they were directed by the Princeton to fly to a rendezvous point about 60 miles away, which apparently in military terms is called a cap point. They were still 40 miles from the cap point, having only been flying a minute or two, when the Princeton radioed them the following, quote, Sir, you won't believe it, but that thing is at your cap point. So whatever the object was, presuming it was the same one, it had not only traveled 60 miles in about one minute, and for you armchair calculator types, that would be nearly five times the speed of sound, it had gone to their cap point, which means that not only was it capable of flight in a way humanity is far from achieving, being able to hover, fly to 80,000 feet and higher, and at speeds of Mach 5 or better, but its operator, if it had one, also knew where the Super Hornet pilots had been told to go via encrypted radio and how to interpret that information in a way that allowed it to beat them there with pinpoint accuracy. And there you go. So it's monitoring our communications and right. able to decipher. Yeah. Not only decipher it, but if it's not human, it's, it's not, there's a lot of translation going on there. In addition to if you heard the number, the coordinates or whatever, now you got to understand how we map the earth and what that means. Commander David Fravor was saying he thought when he got back after his encounter that the Defense Department would have more interest in this encounter. He never got debriefed. He said there yeah. was no debriefing. They've been following no, this thing for two weeks. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, my, my two ideas about why or why not that did not happen. It could have gone two ways. It doesn't really show, it's like, well, it's ours, so we don't need to investigate it, possibly. Right. Or the other direction is that um, they're just going to leave that alone for other reasons. Well, there's a third, is yeah. a, you know, it's theirs or it's them. Yeah. And we have an arrangement. So we're also not well, going to investigate. Yeah, that's, that's option C for me. Yeah. yeah. So it's an interesting development that from the article, what I liked about this is the distinct shape description. Yeah. And it's because it's a very close sighting by a trained observer. Well, and like one of the most fascinating aspects of this and the way that they're describing this craft. And it also attests to the fact that when we talk about UFOs, we still don't have a language for them. We still call things Tic Tacs and, and cigar shaped and stuff like that. But this object, while I'm sure it's freaking him out, it's almost acting like it's in childlike wonder. It's bouncing around like a yeah. ping pong ball. And then it's like playing this game of tag where it's already meeting you at your rendezvous point. Like, I think that's like, I'm sure I would be freaked out in that point, but it's also like really playful. It doesn't seem, I'm sure it's, they'll consider it a threat, but it doesn't seem all that threatening. Well, Rob, I'm so glad you brought that up because that is actually a common thread that we find throughout our series since we've been doing our show, even going back to all these things that appear. I mean, sure, there's the scary, dark, evil stuff that's out there. But a lot of this stuff seems more like it's just there to 
mess around with you. Well, you know, it's, it's the, the and it's and well, I'm talking it's, not just yeah. UFOs. I'm yeah. talking spirits and we well, talk Skinwalker. Yeah, certainly Skinwalker Ranch. When they went to study that, when Nids went to study that thing, what they got was it refused to be recorded. But not only that, it toyed with them. Yeah. So yeah. there's all of that going right. on. And then in addition to that, when you look at the legends and lore surrounding gremlins, which I was hoping to cover at some point this year, and I'm not talking about that movie. <laughs> I'm talking about actual things aviators have encountered. Yeah, right, right. They're very jokestery, but it also threatens your life in that case. Well, yeah, in that, in that sense. But these things, they're so advanced, they have time for both. Whatever yeah. mission they were doing, because that's the tone that I got from... <laughs> Commander Fravor's description is that they're doing something. Yeah. They didn't just appear and start toying with the jets. They're already doing something, whatever their maneuvers were in whatever mission that they had, human or not human, they're doing their thing. Suddenly these jets come upon them, engage them, and it's like, oh, well, let me just toy around here. It's like they're no more threatened than is if a toddler come up to you and started throwing rocks at you. It's like, yeah. uh, okay, I'll just step over to the side here. And right. Then, and then I'm going to grab you and put you back <laughs> yeah. inside. It's something where we're that beneath them that they can, again, intercept our communications. They're so far ahead of us. It's like, let me just zip over here in a second. Look at, what do you think of that, huh? Yeah. So if you're looking at it as human craft and some kind of advanced project that they're out on their mission or maneuvers testing this thing, that is one theory that maybe they are seeing how conventional warfare aircraft and machinery operates or how pilots will react to them when being seen. That's kind of the testing here. Well, let's see, how do they react to us and how do we evade this? It certainly doesn't seem like they're worried about being fired on. Right. We'll get to that a little later, I believe, as far as the the, the follow-up article from the Boston Globe. Yeah. Uh, because there was some description in there about, you know, whether they should be armed, these planes intercepting should be armed or not. What does that mean if they are, if they're not? What you can deduce, I think, from the behavior here that's been described is that they're doing their own thing, and then they have time to kind of engage us in, as a little side, you know, playful thing. Well, and it's funny you should say that because mentioning uh, the fightersweep.com article has a series of, at the time that we're recording this, had about 110 comments on it. Of course, like all comments, they run the gamut. But most of these people theoretically are involved with the Navy or the military or their aviators. One guy said on that page, he said, I was on board the USS Princeton from 2001 to 2005 when all this went down. We actually went to general quarters for about four hours as it was all going down. I've been telling everyone about this, but have gotten the usual yeah, right look when I tell them about it. I saw the video after it happened, but didn't think that it would somehow make its way to the public, considering all the security that surrounded the issue. Then he wrote, crazy how the world turns, isn't it? And, you know, I mean, obviously there's no way to verify this is a random comment on a website where anybody could make a comment. But it sounds plausible. He's not grandstanding. He's not pursuing fame or trying to perpetuate a hoax necessarily. If this is a disinformation campaign, it's pretty thorough. Obviously, somebody could maybe orchestrate that. But it's a serious one. Like, let's say this is disinformation orchestrated by the CIA to cover up the current state of our most advanced technology, which would involve Commander Fravor, all these stories, all the video, these people commenting on the story on the website, all the perspectives associated with it, Luis Elizondo. It's a big, 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 big complex operation if it is conspiratorial in nature. And I'm sure that, you know, being in the realm that we're in on this show, I don't know if people classify us 
as conspiracy theorists. I don't think of myself as that. <laughs> I hope <laughs> but, not. Well, yeah. But, you know, the whole tinfoil hat thing, uh, whatever, I still want to see if we can manage to actually sell those in our store, you know, because we can just make them out of Reynolds wrap. Yeah, we're not doing that oh, on okay. the weekends. All right, okay. okay. I, if you could find someone that can make a fashionable tinfoil hat, yeah. I tell you, people be, you'll be selling out of those in a second. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an interesting story. When you look at it from the big picture, these are the objects, these crafts are the ones that, these type of craft, I should say, are the ones that Robert Bigelow and Luis Elizondo, formerly of this department at the Pentagon and now of To the Stars Academy, they're telling us these things are here and we need to study them more seriously. There's a podcast that's also in our Audio Boom family that we wanted to tell you guys about. Yeah, we've been meaning to tell you about it for a while now, since we know we have a lot of fans that are also into the crime genre. It's called Deliberations, and it's written, produced, and directed by our friend Chelsea Cox, who we actually met at Podcast Movement 2017. We were really impressed with her and her show, so we think if you like crime drama, you're going to really like Deliberations. It's an interesting and fresh angle on criminal drama, where a fictionalized, controversial trial is played out in court and the prosecution and defense make their cases, evidence is presented, and then the actors improvise the jury deliberations, just like in a real jury room. So you really get a sense of personalities and strong opinions hashing it out until a verdict is reached. And the writing and improv is really good, so it makes for a really engaging show. It also makes you think about how your own opinions and prejudices would make you lean towards guilty or innocent in a particular case, or somewhere in between. Now, just to warn you, this show deals with adult themes, and there is some adult language, so it's for mature audiences only. <laughs> well, that's what makes the drama so titillating. Well, season one dealt with a dominatrix who goes a little too far with her lover, and season two, which just dropped, deals with an accusation of sexual assault and using the technique of statement analysis, which is a lie-detecting science based on language to determine who's telling the truth. Whoa, that's pretty timely. Yeah. Check out Deliberations on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your shows, or go to deliberationspod.com for more info. That's D-E-L-I-B-E-R-A-T-I-O-N-S pod.com. The show also has a very lively and interactive Facebook fan page. The first episode of Season 2 is out now, so check it out. Hello, everyone. I'm Julia Covington, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. There are some types of devices that display extraordinary properties. So that's what's coming to light here and being verified with video and testimony of credible witnesses, very credible, and we'll take that. The next question, though, that we don't know is, is where are they coming from? Who's operating them? Who's making these things? What is their purpose? What we do know just from the observations, though, is that it is unlike anything that we know conventionally. Whatever these things are, they are so far advanced. Now they're kind of breaking the rules of physics as we know them, as we're able to manipulate them. So that's the next question, though. What's the purpose of these craft? If these are advanced machines, you know, as the article said uh, in the Boston Globe, the attitude was uh, from Commander Fravers, hey, those machines screwed up because they allowed us to see them yeah. <laughs> and intercept them to a degree. <laughs> right. And it's like, well, yeah, but it's like a toddler coming after you. It's not much of a threat. Yeah. And I guess it depends on their desire to be concealed or not. Right. You know, there was some other commenters on the thread at fightersweep.com that had, one had said, well, look at this picture. It's whales breaching or feeding. But I guarantee you, if you're flying on 
an aircraft carrier for your career, you know what a whale looks like. You're going to see them all the time. So, and even if you did say, okay, the craft was hovering over a whale, breaching, well, then we're right back to Star Trek and Spock and the whales are the aliens and there's <laughs> an old communication. Or, yeah. no, but seriously, if it is hovering over a whale breaching and the object in the water is just a whale, because you know what? Whales have big fins. Even if it was just a whale or some natural occurrence, that doesn't change the nature of what this aircraft was doing above it. Well, yes. And I will now interject this because uh, I just have to. I can't stop myself. Yeah. It's my favorite line, I think, from uh, the follow-up Boston Globe article with Commander Fravor. I know what I saw. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. He said that. He yeah. actually said Forrest's favorite line. Well, did. The, Look, I've never said that personally because I've never seen anything that extraordinary. But he has, throughout yeah. his career, a long and, and storied career, doing some amazing things, uh, flying over the Super Bowl, getting to fly in various jets for the Navy and, I think, the Marines, from what I read in the article, is that he's seen a lot of conventional stuff. And this was beyond the pale. If we're going to take this into other realms, too, when we talk about the I know what I've seen kind of comment, it's like when these experienced hunters go into the woods and they claim to see Bigfoot, well, I would tend to trust them a little more because they've been spending their entire life out in the woods. Yes. They know what's out there. They've seen what's out there. And if they see something that they don't recognize, I tend to take that at with a little more gusto than I would anybody else. But We've backtracked so much when we talk about the UFO phenomenon and where the government took it from 1947 to 1969 because it was under so much ridicule to begin with. And I keep bringing him up and I hate to do it, but again, Sam from Not Alone, he did a wonderful job this week on an episode that detailed the early history of the government's study of UFOs from 1947 to 1952. Oh, cool. And Beyond 1952, you see that the government is not taking it seriously. They're there to debunk this. It's a pushback to taking this as seriously as Ah Tip did. Yeah. And that's why this is so amazing. This entire news event is so amazing is because it is being taken seriously, not just from the aerial threat aspect, but just, hey, look, these things are doing wild and crazy things. We've never really taken it seriously. And I and I love that we're getting back to that, and I hope it furthers more. Even if it's not with the government, or if the government's getting all secretive about it, but just all the ridicule, I'm, I'm happy to see it pushed back. Yeah. That's what I'm so hopeful about for the future with this. Yeah. Well, that's a good point, because, you know, as Forrest says, whenever they cover a local sighting on your local news, and sometimes even the national oh, news, sure. it's immediately the X-Files theme and a gray alien head. <laughs> yeah. You know? And, <laughs> and they're, yeah. they're still going to do that. Yeah. That'll probably still go on until aliens land and they say, <laughs> knock it off because it's <laughs> offensive. Yeah. Then you'll, yeah. Yeah, you'll see a lot of kowtowing. Yeah, when it's not politically correct. <laughs> exactly. Right. We don't look like that. Yeah, you're uh, marginalizing yeah. us. Well, it, and yeah. even still, there's a great quote from Dr. J. Allen Hynek, the father of modern ufology, from an essay that he published called Unusual Aerial Phenomenon. Ridicule is not part of the scientific method, and the public should not be taught that it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and uh, then it goes back to being humble because, Rob, you can kind of recap briefly, if you would, the swamp gas thing where the statement is made— and later, it's he realizes that 
yeah, that was kind of silly. And I, I just wanted to come up with an answer. And that was dumb. I shouldn't have done that. This relates to a sighting in Michigan in, I believe, 1966. I, can't, I don't yeah, remember Yeah, right. Date, I think you're, you're, you're pretty close. Yeah, if that's not it. Yeah. And essentially, almost this entire town witnesses an object land near the swamp and take back off. Like it, it, numerous people witnessed it. And J. Allen Hynek, because he was the consultant for Project Blue Book, was told to come up with an excuse. And the, the famous excuse, it was swamp gas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. That's, you know, the, again, that's kind of like, I don't know what's there. There's a swamp. <laughs> yeah. And this was before he was converted, right, to yes. believing in these things. So he wound up regretting the statement himself. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I mean, you even have inkling before that because the track that Project Blue Book went on started in 52 with a Robertson panel, which basically said, no, we're not going to take this seriously and we're going to debunk. And at the same time, you also have like CIA groups going into civilian UFO organizations, most famously Albert Bender's International Flying Saucer Bureau and bullying them until the point where they actually closed up shop. Right. So, yeah, that byline stuck until 1969 when eventually the Condon Committee's request that uh, Project Blue Book be shut down. That was the way it went. And Hynek, after that, he, he looked like a fool. I want to stress this. If you've never seen a picture of J. Allen Hynek, please go look at a picture of J. Allen Hynek. He looks like Colonel Sanders from... Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't agree more. And, <laughs> and he studied UFOs. Yeah. And he also had a, a short appearance in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yes, he did. Yeah, he walks up, yeah. he's smoking his pipe, his classic uh, yeah. iconic pipe, and uh, just kind of gazes off and gives his uh, a nod of approval, sort of. And you also have Jacques Vallée's not technically in it, but Francois Truffaut, Truffaut plays. Yes. Yeah, Jacques Vallée. Yeah, that's so great, that end scene. Yeah, it's a nod to all those guys. And by the way, I didn't point this out earlier for people that are wondering. Then when that craft went to the cat point, it only went there to make a point, and then it left because by the time they got there, it was gone. Right. It didn't stay to mess with them further, so I I didn't say that. I didn't want to get back to a few more closing facts about Fravor's story. The Times article ends with this. Commander Fravor's superiors did not investigate further, and he went on with his career, deploying to the Persian Gulf to provide air support to ground troops during the Iraq war. But he does remember what he said that evening to a fellow pilot who asked him what he thought he had seen. I have no idea what I saw. It had no plumes, wings, or rotors, and it outran our F-18s. Then he added, as Forrest said earlier, I want to fly one, <laughs> which <laughs> right. is, is great. You yeah, know, of and, course. And, and Fravor told the Boston Globe that he came within nearly a half mile of it by his estimation, and that he and his backseater, as well as the men in the other plane, all saw it with their own eyes for three to five minutes. He goes on to say, I think this story needs to be told. We need to stop making jokes and start paying attention to it. And then one last quote, because all of this I think is very poignant. This is not a U.S. problem. This is a global issue. Why aren't we investigating these things? If it's like E.T., then it's all good. If it's like War of the Worlds or Independence Day, not so much. <laughs> well, he's going to be the one fighting them on yeah. the front lines. Well, yeah, yeah and it's also not going to work. I mean, this those aircraft, their technology is, uh, he goes on to say, our technology is way, way behind. And if we could understand the Tic Tacs technology, it could benefit the world, leading, for example, to new sources of energy. And with the right money and the right focus, you can figure this out. I think there's enough brilliant open minds. I want to come back to one last thing about whatever was below the water. And it got me to thinking 
and it, part of this might have to do with I just saw Hunt for Red October for like the 40, 40th time. <laughs> you see that uh, once or twice a month on, yeah. on routine. It was on. If it's on, I, I click over to it. Uh, but can you imagine how many contacts submarines are coming across, sonar contacts that are unexplained? Yeah. Well, that reminds me, you just uh, reminded me one point, I'm not sure we even mentioned, where this happened 100 miles west off the coast of San Diego in that general region that is a hotspot right. for both UFOs and USOs. There's a lot of reports yeah. of USOs and UFOs coming in and out of the water near Catalina for decades, right, Rob? Right, there hasn't yeah, been. there was actually even, uh, I remember UFO hunters yeah. actually investigated one right off of Catalina Island. It was right near it. There was supposedly a guy flying a plane, and his plane was taken down by a UFO. That's right. You know, that's weird because I was just actually on the side here while you guys were talking, looking that up, because uh, mm-hmm. I was watching the whole series. One of the uh, the members of the team, Patrick Uskert, actually goes diving yeah. In that area. And I believe what's interesting is he finds a plane. But it's not it's, it's, a plane. It's another crash plane. How many yeah. planes yeah. are down there? Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like it's like a junkyard down there. So uh, that well, was there's interesting. A little, there is a little airstrip at yeah. Catalina no, called the and, Airport in the Sky, which yeah. I've been to. I've not flown in and out of it. Correction, no, I have flown right. into it in a helicopter. I forgot. Yeah. The one time in my life I've been in a helicopter, I did fly there. And it, it's a strip. On the top, it's one of those crazy strips, like I mentioned about spiraling. It's like if you screw up, you're done. Uh, actually, <laughs> you know, there, it, it's uh, interesting you, you mentioned that too, because a friend of a friend did screw up yeah. and skidded off and uh, got seriously hurt. That very airport, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. yeah, flying to Catalina because it's a fun weekend thing or or day trip. You go in there and uh, to fly in. But that was the case, though, on UFO Hunters. Is that that was the report that somehow a craft, either intentionally or not intentionally had downed a private plane, and so they went to go look for it and uh, found So who knows? Well, again, Flight 19, that you go looking and you find other planes you didn't intentionally uh, go looking for. So, But the whole area, again, it's in UFO lore, is that for whatever reason, it is kind of a hotspot, much like on the East Coast, the Atlantic Undersea Test and Evaluation Center, or AUTEC, A-U-T-E-C, they have a pretty cool patch. Yeah. (laughs) We're looking at at patches. That is also a hotspot that... has lots of reports of activities that seem to be beyond our current technology that may be attached to this advanced uh, Navy testing that's definitely going on there, but a lot of it possibly not. So again, we got our East Coast, we got our West Coast hotspots. You also just mentioned the two states with the most UFO sightings. Um, yeah. In, yeah. In the top five, California's number one. I think Florida's number five. Well, so, there you go. Yeah. Where do like Colorado and New Mexico rank in there? Because they're kind of also hot spots and Texas, right? Texas, New York, and I want to say it was Colorado. Okay. We're the, we're the five. Yeah. Wow. What's interesting about that is there's reasons to believe that it's entirely possible that there may be human, even U.S. made technology that these guys involved wouldn't know about when you take it in the context of understanding how security clearances work these days. Which brings us to our next guest on the show, Michael, who is going simply by his first name for reasons which will be obvious in a little bit. Michael is a medically retired staff sergeant from the United States Air Force. His previous work experience involved all-source intelligence analysis, geopolitical analysis, and counter-terror operations. He enjoys pina coladas and unicorns. <laughs> well, don't we all? He wrote his own bio. Yeah. And he wrote his own bio. Welcome to the show. 
So, Michael, you had contacted us because you have some expertise in security clearance and how that works, and you had a few things you wanted to clear up for our audience, right? As I was talking to some of my friends about this, you know, they, they wanted to lay out, too, that most of Americans' thought processes about security clearances come from Hollywood. Yeah. Hollywood or, you know, what you heard about in grade school growing up or even possibly college. But really, most Americans don't understand how it works. Now, back in the Reagan era and before the hand, you know, you had different levels of security clearances, which most people generally think of. You have like level one, you have level two, you have level 15, whatever you have now. But after the whole Bradley Manning incident with leaking classified information, a lot of that changed. So now what you have are really, you have four levels of security in the military and in the government. You have unclassified, confidential, secret, and you have top secret. What I heard from you guys, and it's not necessarily you get wrong, it's a common misconception, but you're thinking people have really high security clearances and that's why they have access to this stuff. Right. In reality, what you have is you have a secret and you have a top secret, and both those by themselves are security clearances, but there's ranges of caveats that go along with it. Okay. So it's cut up after Bradley Manning, so not one person can know everything. Oh, really? So you have similarities between secret and top secret. But I'm just going to go with top secret because that's what I had and that's what I used in the military. So top secret, you have top secret, and there's guys that just have a top secret clearance. Right. So people want to take a tour of our building where I used to work, and we could only bring them in a certain section. Even though they had top secret, they could only go in a certain section because they couldn't see what else we were doing there. But then you have a caveat of SCI, which that allows you to get other caveats. And that SCI stands for Secret Compartmentalized Information. Oh, and so after Bradley Manning happened, it's all kind of divided in little boxes. So you may have 15, 20 different caveats, and that's what you're allowed to know and what you're allowed to work in. But when you're done with that area, you get pulled out of that caveat. Okay, right. So they trust you with just what you need to know. It's maybe at the highest level, but it's only at the highest level as it relates to you. Exactly. And whatever you're working on at that time. Right. And another common misconception is people think, oh, well, that's classified information. Well, Information really isn't that interesting, usually. Yeah. Most of the time, it's like a coordinate, or this is someone's dog, or you know, it's something that could be completely irrelevant, but the relevancy of why it's secret is how they got it. Right. That system, that person, whatever, however they got it, is what makes it secret or top secret. Can you talk a little bit about what you used to do and how, why you know this stuff? I was a operations intelligence analyst with the Air Force. We're basically all source analysts, meaning that we touch everything in regards to intelligence. So geospatial intelligence, human intelligence, signals intelligence, excuse me, all these different types of intelligence. You know, human intelligence is really what the CIA does, spec ops, things like that. And then you got signals intelligence, which is what like the NSA does. They listen to signals, they listen to beeps and squeaks, they listen to whatever, over the phone, whatever they're doing. And now and the then, show. Yeah, all right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. My my Alexa's in the background, like, ooh, this is good. Yeah, let's keep on listening to this. Right. And then you have the geospatial, which is for like the National Reconnaissance Office or the uh, Geospatial Intelligence Agency or National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And they deal with satellites. They deal with unmanned aerial vehicles flying around and they deal with that kind of stuff. So what we did was we took all of that. I made it into a digestible intelligence product and gave it to whoever we're supporting, whether it be a unit, could be an agency, could be the commander, could be the wing commander, could be, you know, the secretary of defense. It just depends. So you guys were the funnel. Everything came, you had to take it, all this information and make it into something that the person who needed to execute a mission could understand. Right. And in that timeline, you know, we had to be able to either know how the stuff worked or actually really read up on it really quickly and figure it out. 
Wow, this sounds a lot like uh, Astonishing Legends. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like it's, it's through a waterfall. Right, like, yeah. And, and a lot less intelligence. Yeah, yeah. A lot, we have a lot less intelligence <laughs> on that score. Yeah. Was there anything else that stood out to you? I guess that was just sort of how we were conveying how that might have worked with regard to the stories we covered last week. Is Was there anything else that stood out to you as uh, any sort of mistakes we made or corrections we should have? Not really corrections. Like okay. I said, it's common misconceptions. But, you know, I, I really want to explain how it might work when you're talking about, okay, well, there's these ships or there's this information about aliens that, you know, people in the deepest levels of government know. Right. Well, really how it works is with those compartments of information, they go and certain people will be read into this. Right. And they have to be read into this for years and they leave. Well, if they keep on letting people leave. Then there's no one to read this program into because they all can't anymore. Right. So, Basically, you know, you could have five engineers that are running on this program, but they're only being run in the program about the engine. And then some guys looking over here, chemical engineers looking at the paint. Right. Well, those guys have no clue what each other is. And for a better example, I worked with another analyst who had been for 20 years, and he used to give briefings to people. And there'd be 40 people in the room, and he'd say, well, if, you're not, if you don't have access to this, you can leave the room now. If you don't have access to this, you can leave the room now. And as they get through the PowerPoint, by the end of it, there'd be two people sitting there. Right. It's an intentional case of essentially enforcing the idea that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing, and that's the way we want it. Right. And the thing is, people assume, you know, the president, secretary of defense, whoever knows everything, and they really don't. I don't think anybody knows everything in the government. So for people to presuppose that, oh, well, you know, they all must be in cahoots together. In reality, they probably don't even know about each other. Right. You know, maybe one person's dissecting an alien or doing something on that front. Someone else is working on a weapon. Well, they probably don't even know each other exists. The person that's working on the weapon might think it's totally human. And the person who's dissecting an alien might be dissecting just the torso and thinking it's some kind of animal. It's been radioactive or something like that. Wow, it sounds pretty effective. Now, but you're saying in terms of this hierarchy and this structure, this only exists just since Bradley Manning? It probably has existed longer, but they've definitely pushed it out to the rest of the military and intelligence agencies that way. They made it more pervasive. Right, they made it more pervasive. Probably these programs have existed longer, but they weren't because of someone had a higher intelligence. And it might have been that someone had a higher clearance level, someone had a higher something or other at the time. But as those got pared down, they just stayed in that program and they weren't read into anything. They were just there because they were watching over that program. Right. With regard to what it sounds like you were doing, since you were kind of a funnel, it seems to me that at the time you were doing it anyway, because of the nature of your job, you would have had access to more information than a lot of the people you were disseminating it to exponentially. Right. You know, a lot of the stuff I did was counter-narcotics, counter-terror, counter-drug, things like that. And a lot of that stuff, I'd be working with agencies even where they'd be like, oh, well, we need this unit to go here. I'd be like, why? And they're like, you don't need to know that. Right. Well, I'm like, well, yeah, I kind of need to know that because they want to know what they're getting themselves into. And we'd have an argument about it and it just, it wouldn't get anywhere. Right. So, I mean... It's that kind of stuff that, you know, bad things that have happened, catastrophic events that they blame each intelligence agency for because they wouldn't share information. Sure. They have certain caveats that allow them to share information, but it's got to get declassified to that area. Right. That's fascinating because, I mean, I don't know if there's any connection, but it it makes you think about how the information flowed, like, for example, in the Black Hawk Down incident or something like that. Right. Yeah. It work, seems like it would work really well at keeping things a secret, like really well. But conversely, in an emergency situation, it would be a detriment. 
Right. So another thing most people don't realize is there's 17 intelligence agencies. There's 17 of them. Okay. But it's not really that they're intelligence agencies necessarily. They are, and that's technically what they are. But it's every single department of state has their own intelligence agency. So you have intelligence agency of the Department of Energy. You have the intelligence agency of the State Department. You have the intelligence agency of the freaking Agricultural Bureau. Sure. Um, right. I mean, you have things like, well, why do you need intelligence for that? Well, they all need separate. What if someone's trying to use a bioweapon on an airplane to hit crops with or something like that? You sure, know, sure. They would know that over the State Department. And then they kind of put it all into intranets. And these intranets, if you have the correct level of clearance, so if you have a top secret clearance, you can generally go around the secret and just kind of mosey around. You won't get into everything because you can't. Right. But for stuff that everybody needs to know, it's put out there in bulletins and reports and things like that. And if someone needs a certain piece of information, you can just call them up and say, hey, let's say I need to go and question the FBI about something. I'd call their firewatch and I'd be like, hey, I need the information about X. And they'd be like, okay, well, I'm going to talk to someone about that and get back to you. And that person would call me, an agent or an analyst, and they'd be like, oh, hey, we have this information and um, we're going to give it to you as redacted as possible, but give you the information that you need. Right. And so my job was to take that information and take out all the black marks that they put down to redact it and try and make some kind of information out of it. Sure. Yeah, would you ever be, say, like contracted by another intelligence agency to perform a specific task? Like, hey, we know you have some visual analysts here. What do you make of this? And not give you any information. They just kind of want an objective opinion or kind of like, you know, use your department or your specific area of knowledge to get an answer, but not, as you said, not really give you the big picture. Oh, yeah. I worked uh, with a, what you guys most publicly call drones. Uh, or UAVs, we call them RPAs, remotely piloted aircraft, and they tell us all the time, hey, go look here. Right. Well, what are we looking at? Nothing. Just look <laughs> here for another 15 minutes. Yeah. And we wouldn't see anything, but they're seeing something, so I don't know. I mean, they're looking for something. Right. I mean, that's just how it works, and there's things like that that go on, too. Now, this is the the big Magilla, or a bigger Magilla question here. <laughs> Say if there was some kind of extraterrestrial craft or unknown craft that's being tracked or it's puzzling. You know, basically what I'm getting at here is, the, is you know, the, the grand story of Roswell where there was apparently some material and people have reported that were close or even those that were in the military at the time say, yeah, there is at least some stuff in crates and they ended up going to different Air Force bases, you know, Wright-Patterson, all the ones you hear about and whatever that was, and not saying that they're UFOs or anything like that, but there was some mysterious objects what department would be in control of that, I guess, nowadays? Like, would it be the Aerospace Defense Command, or what division of the military would oversee that? And does any other branch have more, let's say, jurisdiction over the other? Does the Air Force have more jurisdiction over Army intelligence or, or Naval intelligence? Yeah, definitely. Honestly, I have no clue. I mean, to be completely honest, I will say that generally when the military finds something or needs something, they tend to fight like brothers and sisters over it. Right. I know when I was working in the, the UAV squadron, they would fight over our assets like crazy because someone needed something somewhere, someone else needed somewhere somewhere, and they'd be fighting each other being like, no, you don't need it as bad as I It's like, this is ridiculous. So most likely because the Air Force is, I mean, you, you have toss up between the Air Force and Navy as far as scientific studies go. Wright-Pat has Air Force Material Command right there, and that's where they test. It's almost like the Air Force's DARPA. So they test, you know, new materials they can use, and mainly, like, materials and stuff, like, 
it's boring, more boring stuff, but you know, some of it's cool, new types of bulletproof vests or whatever, or new stuff for airplanes, you know, they might've been in control of that. And I guarantee you that they, some government agency probably pulled some Air Force scientists away from that and some Air Force pilots. But as a whole, it'd probably be clocked in one of those programs. And the interesting thing is about those special access programs is not necessarily one department's over all of it. If you want to think about it like Joint Chiefs of Staff, you have a bunch of people that are commanders or whatever that are kind of over it all. So you have director of operations, you have a director of, let's say, science, you have a director of this that are going to be over that program. And they'll be the ones in charge of getting the people to go look at. And a lot of these people are colleagues that they've worked with in the past or subordinates that they've worked with in the past that they know are really good people and they want to grab them. And so they, they do that. And it's not necessarily one department. And that's how another reason why it's so secret is because someone can go out and say, oh, yeah, I saw this and it was under this person's control. Well, no, you were under that person's control and the government can just deny it all the time. Anybody can deny it all the time. And that's the beauty of it, because you need to keep it secret. Right, right. And they wouldn't necessarily have been lying, because there's a bunch of people in control of it. Sure. So really, the ultimate answer is that if there were to be something that, you know, mysterious, crashing or coming into contact, or the U.S. government came into possession of it somehow, there's really no one, no department, no persons that would be known to the public that would be handling this or in control of that. That's almost above top secret then. Who's going to decide who handles, who takes care of this? No publicly known department would be known to be handling this, as far as you could tell. Right. I mean, it's no department in general. I mean, right. it's no department. There, they, see, people want to think, oh, well, you know, I, I think toward Transformers, when the guy goes, hey, I'm Sector 7 or whatever, yeah. when he tells Shia LaBeouf that, and it's like, it's better just not to name anything. And it's just a special access program. Right. I mean, it's a program. There's no, you know, and probably what will happen is the Air Force might grab a hold of it, but then they'll have a sit down with every other department agency representatives and they'll be like, okay, we have this. What do we do with it? And they'll say, hey, we need to vector it into this program. It's better just not to name anything. It sounds a lot like the protocol for the beginning of a, a Men in Black encounter. Right. <laughs> that, and and that, that might be where they got it from, honestly. I mean, you know, you've got to look to see, you know, there's a lot of military that have, that are working in Hollywood, that have worked in Hollywood beforehand to create movies. And they've used a lot of this experience for consulting. Right. So, I mean, you're going to make a movie like Men in Black. It's like, well, why don't we look at what we already have? Right. You know, we're not going to name something ridiculous like Sector 7. I mean, now you can just, <laughs> someone can just go hack into the DOD servers somewhere, and it happens all the time. You see it on the news. Yeah. And they can just go look, oh, what's Sector 7? I've never heard of that before. Right. <laughs> and so, we, honestly, names are so convoluted and boring in the first place that you wouldn't even know what to look for. Yeah. But we're not going to name a certain department or a certain section for this type type of stuff. Yeah, like the names, the UFO wait, department. Like, names yeah. like uh, wait, where is it here? The Advanced Aerospace <laughs> Threat Identification Program. Right. Yeah. And the funny thing about that is that's not the first time I've heard that. But in the Air Force, there's something similar to that I can't remember the exact name of it. But that program was literally what it sounds like. It was for like enemy aircraft. Right. It may be something that's been developed by another nation that we aren't aware of. Ideally, right. that's what they're looking for. Well, that's what it should have been. I mean, but, I mean, that's what they developed these radars for, probably, or whatever they were using, was to look for, you know, the Russian version of the F-22. You're looking at MiG-32s, MiG-SU-32s, SU-whatever, you know, I can't remember the names anymore. But, yeah. you know, you're looking for all these aircraft and what they can do. 
So that's what it sounds like, and that's what they did. But, you know, maybe under the guise of that dark money and everything else that they were using, they might have been like, hey, we're going to add this special program into this radar, and it can detect other things. And Airman Snuffy over here is going to look at it and be like, oh, what is this? He's like, well, keep an eye on that. I'm not really sure. And then they'll send it up to whoever is in charge of the program, and they'll know what they're looking at. Okay. So did you read the New York Times piece that we referred to last week? Yeah, I did. I read it. So what's your impression of that? And also specifically as it relates to security clearances, what do you think Luis Elizondo, when he resigned, because he was pushing back about the security? Because one of the things that I thought was a contradiction in that article was that he was saying there was too much secrecy and pushback, and so therefore he resigned. But by the same token, Harry Reid had been pushing for increased security around it. And it seemed like maybe those two ideas were at odds. And, you know, what's your overall impression of that? And also your overall impression of that article in general? You know, I think it gets into politics, honestly. And really, it gets into personal feelings, too. I mean, there's a lot of people that do what I did in the military that just can't take it, whether it's the secrecy involved, whether it's the amount of people prosecuted. Not in that kind of way. (laughs) You know, the way you're probably thinking, prosecuted. Yeah. They can't handle it. There have been people that have breakdowns or people, you know. And so they have a personal issue. And a lot of people end up getting transferred out into a different squadron and do other things, you know, more basic stuff or more bland stuff. So, you know, you have one guy on one side that says, hey, the world needs to see this technology. And I don't like that. It's a secret. On the other hand, you have senators, you have congressmen, they're like, hey, we can use this for our own good. So it's kind of like the atom bomb. There's a lot of people in the Manhattan Project that have a real problem with it. And especially after they saw what damage it could do, which they already knew in the back of their heads what it could do, when they actually saw it, they were flabbergasted. A lot of them quit. Right. What have I done? Yeah, what have I done type of thing. And, you know, I don't know if it was to that extent because, yes, it could probably be used as a weapon or use some kind of surveillance or something like that. But the government's first impression for anything, and this is what my grandmother told me too, is what can it do for me? Yeah. That's always in the back of my head, and especially after seeing with the military, it's like we had a phrase in the military, if the government wants to give you something, it's usually not for your own benefit. (laughs) 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 That's the same thought process. What can the government do for me? And that's what congressmen and senators are. Okay, well, we can keep our skies safer with this. Yeah. If indeed they are developing this technology. If not, they might be saying, okay, this is going to be a mass panic, and I really don't want to deal with this type of thing. And this guy's like, no, we need to tell everybody if it's A, aliens, and they need to know. But, I mean, it's not really going to be a surprise to most people that's the case. There are people that put it in the back of their head, but a lot of people, you know, they're semi-interested in it. You know, to say that we're not alone in the universe is really strange to think. So do you think there is an extraterrestrial component to some of these encounters described by that department and the other articles and the stories that you hear with these you know, Super Hornet pilots and that kind of stuff? That's twofold. One, I think it's interesting that Towards the end of the article, they had someone saying, you know, is this, or in the middle of the article, they had, you know, they were asking an astronomer or something with NASA, I think, was this extraterrestrial? And they said, well, I wouldn't necessarily count on it. Right. So that means the thing. And, you know, if you read Tom DeLong's book, Secret Machines, which I have read, it's fantastic. Uh, yeah. I'm sure Rob's read that. I haven't read it. The end of the book, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but basically they're asking, you know, well, where are the aliens or where do they come from? And he's like, well, how do you know they weren't always already here? Yeah. And so that, that gives you another component. Do you, are they necessarily from somewhere? Are we looking at maybe, and this is going to sound really out there, and, you know, it's something I've tossed around with this, with these different explanations. People aren't going to say they're out from outer space. Okay, are they from forest point of view, that they're all sort of terrestrial? Right. Which I kind of like that idea, you know, with um, John Keel and everything else that happened with that. Maybe they are from a different dimension, which is totally plausible. Or are we looking at a Jules Verne idea during the center of the Earth? Is there another 
hidden civilization down there that we don't know about. <laughs> yeah. That's something crazy to think about, too. Or well, you, you have a final thing. a perfect fit for the research core here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have a final thing to think of, too. You know, well, maybe it is man-made, but who's making it? Right. And if it's not a government, then that's really terrifying to think about. Yeah. It's a James Bond villain. Well, exactly. I was about to say. Yeah. Or it's, you know, it's, uh... <laughs> With the Hornets, the Super Hornets, you know, like I said, everything's compartmentalized, so they would have no clue what it is. And right. if you have 767 pilots, 77 pilots, you have people from the military spanning ages saying, oh, well, there's things flying in the air. Well, obviously, they've heard about them. They've heard them from their friends. They've heard them from their colleagues. They've heard them from their mentors. And they're saying, okay, well, this is a UFO because I've seen it. Well, not necessarily. We don't know what it is, for one. I mean, they know it's a thing. Like, DOD has said, okay, yes, this is real. They haven't come out and said anything more about that. But they're thinking it's a UFO because that's what they've been told. And so, you know, our experiences are also developed by how our world is shaped and who's around us. So, you know, if I went to go see it and I, I see something that looks silvery flying across the sky, I wouldn't know what to think of it, right. honestly, because that's who I am. I keep an open mind to everything. I'd be like, what was that? Yeah. But, you know, if you're a fighter pilot, and I hate to say it, some fighter pilots are kind of close-minded. <laughs> you know, like, oh, my God, that's a UFO. That doesn't, and that's what they're thinking. But you look yeah. at the video anyways, you're probably going to assume it's a UFO, too. Sure. By definition, it is an unidentified flying object. Right. It wasn't hailing their s signals, and you know, it wasn't identifying whether it was friend or foe. It wasn't squeaking anything out or squawking anything out that would let them know, hey, you know, I'm friendly. Don't shoot. Because they obviously didn't care if it shot or not. All right. Well, I'm so glad you came on the show. This has been very enlightening to me, actually, really enlightening, and it will inform our position on how this stuff is compartmentalized going forward, I think, with these kinds of stories. And did you have anything else you wanted to add, or Forrest, do you have any other final questions or anything? Anything else you wanted to say, Michael, while you're on? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you, man. This has been really informative. I appreciate you taking the time to reach out to us, and uh, I'll see you in the research core. Yeah, definitely. See you guys around. Okay. That's some fascinating clarification there. To me, that definitely opens the doors to understanding how maybe, just maybe, there could be something terrestrial that is under, you know, human power that everyone involved in might not necessarily be aware of because the left hand doesn't, as I said with Michael, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Consider this. The Tic Tac was obviously far superior to the FA-18F Super Hornet, yet it did not attack. So what does that mean? Does it mean that the pilots of the Tic Tac are benevolent? Or maybe the reason it didn't attack is because it doesn't want to risk discovery or evidence of its weaponry or on the off chance that something happens and it gets involved in a conflict and then it crashes and then it's recovered by people who aren't supposed to know about it. But when you think about all that compartmentalization and you think about like the SR-71, if you saw the SR-71 flying the first year it was capable of flight – you would not have even begun to think that it was human, you know? Right. I mean, it definitely flew, it's ballistic motion, et cetera, and it's an aircraft, but the shape is so crazy. Because when did they first fly? The, what was the one that was before the SR-71 that is the well, one that's... Well, that's Project like, Oxcart was uh, yeah, but the, the earlier the, one. Oh, the A A12. The A12, right, which looks just like the SR-71. When that first flew, I don't know what year it was. I can't remember now, but I guarantee you, if you looked up and you saw that, you would think it was from another world. Right, but it's generally flying in a straight line. You know what I'm saying? True, it, it'll, that's true. It'll take it... Yes, yeah, they take turns, and they're traveling so fast. Like I said, turns take miles Yeah, at slow speeds. This always kind of pings different uh, recurring explanations that I hear. And Rob, you can maybe uh, chime in yourself with this. When you see stuff like this, conventional military encountering something anomalous, 
or, you know, an event that could be taken as a threat. It's like Malmsteen Air Force Base, uh, the missile base being shut down momentarily, that while craft is being seen, the explanation you hear, it's like, well, you know, it's the more the secretive parts of the government or the military testing how our conventional military would react to different scenarios. And it's like, that's pretty dangerous to be toying around with that. Well, as we've seen with uh, Commander Fravor, he was contacted by the radio operator on the Princeton and asked if he had any missiles on him. And Commander Fravor responded, well, I got two Catam 9s which are, again, dummy missiles. Uh, that cannot founded. be fired. No, they can't. So he's asking him. If you can't it, even throw them at somebody. <laughs> <laughs> you can probably release them. They'll just drop you yeah. if you're right over them, and maybe it'll cause a dent. Yeah, if you want to look like you're pooping your pants. Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> the idea, though, you wouldn't ask that. It's like if you come upon them to engage the target, can you defend yourself? Or if there's a hostile act, can you return fire? So that's why that question was asked. I think for, you know, defensive purposes, but certainly I've heard of other militaries being sent out and and told to fire on these craft with no effect. So, yeah, you always hear that as an explanation, like, why were they toying with Commander Fravor? Why were they, they seem to be doing something else first. It's like, hey, we're doing uh, some kind of testing here with the big Tylenol, and here comes a jet. Let's see how he reacts. They know what their craft can do. Flies somewhere 60 miles away at a point that is impossible for our conventional jets to do. Yeah. And already guess the spot that they know is going to show up on radar on the USS Princeton. It's going to be tracked. Yeah. What's the point of that? To see how our military reacts, you know, and also, as Commander Fravor said, as I as I mentioned earlier, hey, it was their fault. Those guys got discovered. They're there. And he's joking around, of course. Yeah. But the idea is if they're that advanced, uh, how could they let us discover them? It's like, well, obviously, to my point, you know, they, they didn't care. They and, didn't care, or they, just like people do sometimes, they got distracted. <laughs> well, they were busy. Well, no, no, look, they're busy talking yeah. to the whales. Look. They didn't notice what was happening behind them. No, you know what it, it reminds me of? It's that one story about Skinwalker Ranch, where Mrs. Sherman on the ranch comes up and she sees what looks like a weird futuristic trailer. There's a window and a guy in some kind of spacesuit inside doing paperwork. Yes. And she walks up to it, <laughs> yeah. and the thing is like, oh, God, I got to move this thing again. He hits a button. And it flies and it, it away. Fl- it flies away another <laughs> 300 yards. Like, okay, it'll take her a couple of minutes to get here. Yeah. Should she still have the guts to come walking over here? It went over a fence, too. Yeah, it was just like, it's just like, okay, just move over here. Again, it's like a toddler coming after you. It's like, yeah. oh, let me just move over here. I'm going to step up Maybe on Maybe it'll uh, forget about me. Yeah, it's just, I still got work <laughs> to do. I got another hour here before my shift ends. Yeah. You know, we don't know what their purpose is of what their maneuvers are, why they're doing what they're doing, but, and maybe it is to test our capabilities and our reaction times and, and, and how we would react. But you could kind of know that, I think, if you're already in the military, especially in some secret level of it. It could be, too, that it, what if it's uh, fully mechanized? What if it's artificial intelligence? That's another it, theory, is that these just things... wasn't programmed properly. Yeah, the, well, it no. missed the boat. <laughs> I mean, if it's like if it was a Star Trek episode, it would be that thing where, like, when you're engaged in a whale discussion, you have to lower the shields. Right. And then when you lower the shields during the whale discussion, you also lose the sensor array on the back of the ship that tells you an F-18 <laughs> Hornet is coming, and it's going to try and shoot you down. Right. Well, uh, you know, I would... dummy missiles. <laughs> I would say that um, that's a possibility, but to me it seems a little risky 
to be engaging craft that, you know, is, is ready to fire. On well, here's something. the thing. Nothing when, was things that cost millions of dollars. Yeah. Accidents can happen. That's one, you know, I was talking earlier about uh, friends telling me things that happened in the military. Well, a lot of them are ac potential accidents where it was a really close call. Yes. Especially in the Navy and especially on aircraft carrier with a bunch of jets flying around and landing and taking off. It's a delicate operation and, and people can be hurt or killed and millions of dollars wasted on damaged craft. So possibly that I'm not ruling that out to my reasoning that it was kind of toying and testing the conventional aircraft, uh, the response times and, and how they would react but it seems to me how this is playing out or what was described is that they're doing their own thing and here comes a cute little jet that's going to intercept us. We'll just kind of blip over here for a second and uh, not even so much toying with them, but just kind of getting out of the way because it wasn't much of a show. But again, this being documented and also revealed to the public is significant. Yeah, and like also when you talk about like one of the first cases of a U.S. plane engaging with a UFO that ended up with a casualty with uh, Captain Thomas F. Mantell in yes. 1948. Yeah. He pursued an object straight up and his plane was not able to, with the technology back then, sustain up. So he came back down, lost his life. And at that time, you also saw the perception change a little bit to, well, now these are a threat, even though it wasn't technically the UFO attacking him, it was him pursuing the UFO. Right. And there's a mysterious element to that where, and again, a little bit of a military cover-up or denial of something. Yeah. They pulled his body from the wreckage, but it was so badly damaged. Oh, okay. That they couldn't really identify it. But there was always that mysterious aspect where, no, he caught fire in the cockpit. That's right. And yeah, so that's where that stigma comes around about, oh, well, the UFO, you know, did it to him. So again, it's that kind of scenario you, you hear about a lot is that these things are discovered by military personnel and evade them, toy with them, chase them. Ever since the, the Foo Fighters of World War II, another era when, you know, we didn't really have that, but American fighter pilots were describing this and these glowing orbs, these orange orbs pursuing them and kind of toying with them that didn't seem to have any attack capabilities, or they certainly didn't attack them with any weapons, but they were definitely more advanced and whatever they were baffled our American pilots, including Alaska Senator Ted Stevens. That's why he was interested also in pursuing this on a government level when he himself encountered a similar engagement with an unidentified flying object when he was in the military. And it's one of those things where, uh, as we're seeing here with these fighter pilots, is that once you have one of these experiences that is so beyond what is normal or expected, you become fascinated for life and you, you know, want answers. I just want to quickly say we cannot discuss Thomas Mantell without discussing his famous last words. Oh, yeah. There are windows and I can see people in it. Mm. That's the last thing he said. I yeah. knew he had famous last words. I had to Google them there. That's right. Yeah. There are windows and I can see people in it. Yeah. Whatever it was. I, who knows if it was actually people. But here's what I want to say. With regard to everything you're saying and what you're saying, Rob, additionally, is this hadn't really occurred to me until I took a look at the comment thread at fightersweep.com about Commander Fravor's incident, which uh, was my favorite article uh, of all the ones we read. The New York Times one is groundbreaking because it's of the veracity of the paper and how seriously it's taken. And then this follow-up one in the Boston Globe just a couple of days ago. But the fightersweep.com one, which has been out for a while – 
that one has seemed to have the most details and it seems to be the most candid. It's more like you're in a room with other people in the military reading about it, which is what I enjoyed about that article. But when you get down into the comments, which are presumably mostly from people who are involved in the military or possibly naval aviators or Air Force aviators, one of the guys says he starts talking about black projects and how the black projects work. And when you take this and you connect it back to Michael's interview and the segmentation and compartmentalization of the security clearances, this guy was basically saying, you know, you might not know what these are, but when you look at uh, Commander Fravor's incident and when they are first contacted to ask if they were armed, the first thing that I took it to mean when I read about the incident was that we got something, we don't know what it is, we want you to intercept it, and you might need to be ready for combat. Yeah, that's right. That was my thought. Yeah. But what this guy was saying in the comment thread following the article at Fighter Sweep was what they're trying to confirm is that their high-tech black project isn't going to get shot down. Well, that's what and I'm we saying. Want to know, yeah, yeah. We want to know if you can see it. Right. What does it look like to you as a you know potential fake enemy combatant? We right. want to know what's this experience of interacting with this if you were not one of ours, but in a MIG or whatever. What do you see? But please, please don't shoot it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Again, that's uh, option two for me or, or thought option two is that you're doing it to see the reaction and you don't want anybody to get hurt or millions of dollars or maybe a billion dollars going down the drain here, right. going and into the drink. It, and it's a mixed thing because it could partially explain the lack of a debriefing. I yeah. mean, they were tracking it for two weeks, the Princeton was. Right. It was in the same place every day. It was going down to the water, up and down sure. all over uh, its credible speeds. It, it may not even be manned if it's a human vehicle. Right. But the question is, is there no debriefing because they already know everything they need to know about it? beyond just what you perceived as an eyewitness account? Or what is the other reason? Why wouldn't you want to talk to the pilot that engaged it? I can't figure that out. But I do think it's interesting. This commenter said, you know, these are black projects. They're going on all the time. They've been going on forever. They just want to see what it's like to engage with it. But they don't want you to shoot it. Because in the other case, they weren't armed either in the other story. The two stories that were released by... Right, right. Yeah, these are routine training missions. Right. So you're not necessarily dispatching something to take this thing out. I do think when you take all that and you combine it with what Michael was saying about security clearances, I think it's entirely plausible that everyone involved in the incident in the Pacific off the coast of San Diego, it's entirely possible that another branch of the government is creating aircraft like this and nobody out there would even know about it. It's like Michael said, the the president, everyone is like, oh, he's got top secret, he can know everything. No, you get a certain amount of clearance for a certain amount of time and when you're done being involved with that particular mission, they take it away from you. Right. Well, but you can also flip that around and say like, well, if they did send this craft and and suddenly they knew that they were going to be intercepted, seen on radar and intercepted by fighter aircraft, that they're going to want to debrief him to get his idea. If if that was a purpose, like, well, let's see how they react. Well, then you're going to want to talk to him. Like, what'd you think this thing was? Did you think it was a alien? How did you, you know, do you think you could have gone up against it? How did it behave to you? You would still interview them. So if you're going to flip it around saying, like, they weren't interested in interviewing the pilots, and obviously there weren't. That was the case. That's what uh, Commander Fravor said, is that I thought it was really strange that uh, the DOD never asked me anything about it, didn't debrief me, didn't seem to care that much. You know what I'm saying? It's like, well, go through the motions and just interview the guy. See what is, you know, you include all data. You know, what it could explain, too, again, regarding the security clearance, and I know I'm like a broken record with this, but it could also explain how Bigelow and Harry Reid and Daniel Inouye and Ted Stevens might not have been aware. And I mean, because Bigelow clearly believes in aliens. Reid is more or less saying that he believes in aliens. Right. The other two obviously had open minds about it. 
in terms of disinformation, if you're the CIA or whoever manages keeping black projects black and keeping secrets at Area 51 or 52 or 55 or Dolce Base or wherever they're doing it now, <laughs> nothing could be better than high-ranking American officials throwing everything they can at this who seem to believe and perpetuate the idea of alien spacecraft because then the other upside to that is that enemy your enemies or whatever, even if right. it's a cold enemy like Russia or whatever, they look over and they see some crazy story about this thing that's talking to whales and flies away. That... And I'm taking that whale thing too far. Nobody, <laughs> nobody said it was a whale. That's just me making a joke. Well, no, okay, didn't, but don't, wasn't one of the comments that like, it was hey, a comment. It could yeah, be a breaching the, whale. On the fighter sweep yeah, of course. website. But it right. was not my idea. But like he was more seemed to think that it was a craft of some kind sure. under the water. But my point is that when that makes the news and, you know, Putin's sitting there reading his paper and it's like, oh, they have UFOs. You know, <laughs> what, what, it's like, or does he think, oh, they've developed something that we need to be really, really worried about. Dude, if you're talking about the Russians, they have their own thing going on. Rob maybe can chime in on this. That was really curious about a year ago, a little bit more. Putin was teasing that he was going to announce what was on the dark side of the moon. Yeah. And the UFO community was like, what, really? Well, let's see what they got to say. Then he made a big announcement and he went like this. It is dark. It's a of cheese. I don't. Whatever the deal is, is that uh, they have their own thing going on. So I, I see your point. They have um, drones, by the way. I just read this. They have drones that were operate under the ocean now that apparently can deliver. These are underwater yeah. drones that can deliver nuclear weapons. Of so you course, you don't even need the sub anymore. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. Little, I'm sure we have this. That's what's being developed at Autech. Yeah, off the Florida coast. DSRVs. Yes, that we think on their own. We you no, know, it's always been competing. They got something. We find out about it. We got to develop the similar thing. It happens with them. But when you're talking about these senators, and again, Rob will probably confirm this, is that when you talk about that shadow government that operates and does all these things, what they say is like, look, politicians, they're only in for a certain amount of time. Even if you're a beloved senator and you've served for 25, 30 years, these other people, this is a lifetime commitment of secrecy. And these projects have been going on and on under this cloak of secrecy. And of course, we have things that politicians, even if you're the chair of the Armed Forces uh, Committee, you're not going to know about because you can't, because you're going to be a private citizen at some point. And the people that carry on this work are super dedicated. And uh, of course, there's technology that is not going to be brought to light. Rob can tell us what he knows about it. But that's what I've read and heard is that, you know, you have these people that are lifetime secret keepers, a little like the, the X-Files, you know, where you have this thing going on that only a very, very, very select few know about. You basically have the story of Majestic 12. Yeah. And these 12, this group of people that operates outside of the government, even though they're technically part of the government. And then you have Eisenhower as he's leaving office, warning against the military industrial complex, you know, that's always been connected to that, though nobody's really ever been able to prove that MJ-12 was anything. Of course, there was a, a manual called Psalm 101, yeah. which is basically uh, a manual about how you deal with crashed UFOs and stuff like that, which is it's kind of fascinating, but at the same time is probably not true. But when you talk about the secrecy aspect and you talk about companies like uh, Lockheed Skunk Works and stuff like that, the way it operates is that you push it to third parties now. Because when you push this to third parties, you're not subjected to those Freedom of Information Act requests. Right. And the government's trying to avoid making mistakes because uh, 
of course, a few years ago, the government acknowledged Area 51 existed in a memo that somebody got from a Freedom of Information uh, Act request. So the government doesn't want to mess up. And even when you do get these uh, Freedom of Information Act requests back, they're heavily redacted. But still, there's ways in which secrecy is functional within the law, which is kind of amazing to watch. And how do you do that? Well, you kind of push it outside the government, but just only a little bit, not too far. All right, Rob, before we wrap this series up, uh, you had said earlier that you had found that Tom DeLonge's To the Stars Academy had done kind of an interesting <laughs> analysis on both of these events from the two New York Times articles. Let me just say, I, I like that name. I really do. It still, though, sounds a little bit like a, a talent agency for children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do I do love the name, though. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. So d- what did they say about these two stories? Well, in their gimbal video analysis, they discerned that the craft had no distinguishable flight surfaces. It lacked an obvious propulsion system. It had never before seen flight capabilities and a possible energy or resonance field of unknown nature. So in the most interesting video, there's clearly more unexplained stuff going on. Yeah. High strangeness to go around. You agree with that assessment that they made? Um, yeah, I don't think you can really refute that. It's pretty well in the video, and I trust their distinguished board. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That See, now, to, to me, that was a big distinction that we didn't really get into it, but I think we talked about it previously, is the big revelation from the Peruvian Navy, correct? About a year ago, where they released some video from a year's previous encounter. That they still can't explain. That they still can't explain. That was also captured on FLIR, and that video is available. The interesting thing there is, and the difference here, is that they did capture some kind of large plume of hot gas or some kind of emission from this vehicle that was invisible to the eye, I guess a television mode, but picked up on FLIR. So you could see it, that it had a temperature difference, and it was a huge cloud of something. So it didn't seem like propulsion, but it was like, you know, let's dump the tanks on the toilet or something was coming out from this. And so that's another big revelation. But it made a little bit of a splash here, but since it's not our own military, not as much. Well, yeah, and also back in October, Josh Gates released a short series called Expedition Unknown Hunt for Extraterrestrials. He went down there and tried to debunk that footage, and he could not. So what did they have to say about the other case? They determined that the craft in the other video was hovering without a propulsion exhaust plume. It showed extreme maneuverability and startling changes in acceleration, and it attained hypersonic velocities without sonic boom. Okay. That's right. That's another great point. You're saying that's not the gimbal video? That's the other one? That's the other video, correct. Wow, I didn't know you could get all that information from that other one because I didn't see yeah, that. I didn't get a whole lot from that other one. I didn't either. And realistically, it's not all that great a video. It, for one, it's really super grainy considering how good that forward-looking infrared was. Yeah. But also, it's just hanging out there until it just speeds off. So, yeah, it's kind of amazing that they did determine all that from that video. But uh, I'll go with it. I'm trusting you, Tom. I have no other choice. Tom DeLong, take me to the stars. <laughs> 
that's going to wrap up our series on imminent disclosure. We'll be back next week with a new show. Special thanks to our guest, Rob Christofferson, and be sure to check out his new podcast, Our Strange Skies. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Julia Covington. Hi, I'm Bob Morey, and I give permission to astonishing legends to use my voice however they see Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Thank you.